Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Since World War II, there's been a bipartisan consensus on how American foreign policy should, broadly speaking, work. But in the past few years, this consensus has started to crack. It's not only because of Trump, but also some leading progressives are arguing that it's time for a rethink, for a change in the way that we conduct and understand American foreign policy. So for the next few weeks, we're going to talk to some of the top people in this intramural debate on the left, some leading members of Congress and academics on both sides of the argument. This week on Worldly, part of the Vox Media Podcast Network, uh, Jen is going to interview Representative Ro Khanna. He's a progressive Democrat from California and a leading policy thinker on issues ranging from tech to the war in Yemen. But before we get into the interview, uh, I, I want to let you know that we're conducting an audience survey on the show. It takes no more than five minutes, and it's really useful for us. So please take it at voxmedia.com slash podsurvey. Now, with no further ado... Here's Jen with Representative Rokana. Congressman, thanks so much for being here. Thank I you, really Jen, for having me. I appreciate you coming. Let's start right off. You have uh, basically tried to lay out a progressive vision of foreign policy. But before we get into that, I, I kind of want you to talk about the Democrat foreign policy status quo that you thought wasn't really working. Well, after the Cold War, America was uh, a unipolar superpower, probably had greater power than any nation any time in human history. And there was a naive view that America could just promote our system of government, our values across the world, and uh, even if that required military force. I don't think it was always poorly intentioned, but there was just this sense that Tocqueville's prophecy that democracy was going to spread around the world was going to come true. You had Francis Fukuyama writing about the end of history right. and this great optimism that we could just refashion the world in America's image. In fact, I remember asking a senior official in the Clinton administration, what were you thinking in extending NATO as far into uh, to the Baltic states as, as you did? And they said, well, uh, the hope was that Russia would join NATO one day. Right. Uh, so I think that this was the uh, sentiment uh, post-Cold War. And it underestimated uh, the role that uh, culture plays, that role place plays, the resistance to uh, American projection of power. Uh, but it didn't necessarily come from a, a bad place. Sure. And so was there like a moment or a particular you know, event or instance in you know previous administration that really solidified for you what wasn't working, where you kind of just looked around and said, something's got to change? The seminal event was the war in Iraq. That's sure. what uh, started my political career. I ran for Congress and lost 72 to 19 in the first anti-Iraq war primary in 2004. And that, to me, 
symbolized the mistake uh, that America could use force to refashion the world in liberal democracies that support us. And that, as you know, was supported, of course, initiated by George W. Bush, but had a lot of support from uh, senior Democrats. Uh, That, to me, was the biggest mistake of foreign policy uh, in the 21st century. Right. So I think, you know, when you kind of look at that and you started looking around going, this isn't working, was there a certain way you started looking about, like, how to fix this? Were you talking to other people? Were you just kind of thinking it through yourself? You you referenced Tocqueville and and Fukuyama, so clearly you do a lot of reading on the the classics of foreign policy and, and international relations. Was there something that really just kind of kicked that off for you of like, this is how it should look? Or or were you just working through it? Well, I was reading a lot of people from Contrita Van Hoodeville to uh, many different thinkers uh, on foreign policy. And I read John Quincy Adams, where which I think everyone uh, should read, because John Quincy Adams talks about of course, we shouldn't be in search of monsters to destroy. But that doesn't mean that Quincy Adams was an isolationist. The passage right before uh, the passage about not going out to seek monsters to destroy, uh, John Quincy Adams talks about how Americans should chair uh, liberal democracy and offer our prayers, our benedictions, our hopes, even our economic assistance. But we just shouldn't engage in a military intervention where we may aspire to be liberators, but would be seen as dictators. And so I thought John Quincy Adams in many ways articulated uh, the guiding principles, actually, of what a progressive foreign policy would look like, which is a restraint when it comes to military intervention, but an active engagement with the world when it comes to solving issues of climate change, when it comes to regional diplomacy to try to bring peace, when it comes to nonproliferation, when it comes to economic assistance uh, that may promote uh, liberal democracy. The one thing that I kind of look at is that this sounds really great, and I agree, but when it gets down to the nitty-gritty and, like, the dirty work of actual doing foreign policy, sometimes the details tend to kind of break down. And I know you've done a lot of work on, in particular, Yemen and uh, around Iran. So if you could just talk, I guess, for a little bit about what you've done, and I know you worked with Senator Sanders and some others um, on legislation around Yemen. If you could just tell our listeners kind of what you've been doing on that. I'm very proud of our work on Yemen. Uh, Senator Sanders and I passed for the first time in American history a war powers resolution uh, to uh, stop our refueling of Saudi planes. uh, And the Saudis uh, continue, uh, but less so, to bomb Yemen. Uh, Yemen faces a potential famine of up to 14 million people. When you talk to Martin Griffiths, the special envoy to the UN, uh, he will tell you that we need to stop the Saudi blockade uh, we need to get food and medicine there. We need to make sure the Houthis are delivering that food and medicine. They're, right. they're not blameless. But our uh, efforts really worked. I mean, even though President Trump vetoed the legislation, the administration voluntarily suspended uh, refueling uh, in direct result to congressional action. Uh, Secretary Mattis at the time uh, said that he called the Saudis uh, to try to facilitate the, the ceasefire in Hodeidah, again, as a result of congressional action. And we are in the National Defense Authorization now trying to stop any spare parts going to the Saudis, uh, which would put further constraints on their uh, aerial bombing campaign. 
Thank you. And I think, you know, a lot of Americans, I think for a very long time and probably still to this day, are are not aware what's going on in Yemen or that the U.S. is involved, that their tax dollars are involved in this kind of horrific humanitarian crisis. And if I could make one other point on, on Yemen, sure. which I think uh, gets to uh, moral philosophy, you know, in a theory of moral sentiments, Adam Smith has this great passage. He says, if there's an earthquake in China uh, and someone loses their finger, they're going to be more concerned about losing their finger than the earthquake in China. And that is a fairly accurate uh, description of human nature. But he has the second passage where he says, but if you were to ask that person, would you not cut off your finger uh, to save uh, thousands of lives. No one would say, no, no, uh, I want to save my finger instead of thousands of lives. And his point is that there's a difference between empathy and action. And when you're taking action, reason and deliberation matters. And that's the situation in Yemen. This isn't just empathy. This is rational action that America is taking that's contributing to a crisis. And we ought to have uh, the reason and the sense of dignity and principle to say we ought not to contribute to one of the worst famines in human history. I want to stay on Yemen, but to talk about that, if I believe correctly, you support the Iran deal. I do. Okay, I thought so. So the Obama administration's original kind of rationale, uh, according to Obama's own officials after the fact, for supporting the Saudi-led war in Yemen was essentially as a trade-off, right, to get the Saudis to support or not even really support the Iran deal, but not actively thwart or, you know, oppose the Iran Correct. deal. And so, you know, I know Obama administration officials later, you know, came to regret that decision and said that they should have either not done that or should have pulled back sooner or should have tried to, you know, do more to, to push for peace. But that kind of speaks to one of the the really messy trade-offs that is the kind of thing I'm, I'm thinking about when it comes to, a, you know, a, a foreign policy that is progressive, that is based on ideals. But when it comes down to you have to sometimes make those really ugly trade-offs. And so I was kind of wondering if you were in that that chair, right, making that decision, whether to have a successful Iran nuclear deal that would have the kind of greater good of trying to prevent Iran from getting a nuclear weapon versus, you know, if, if the trade-off was I have to support the Saudis in this nasty war in Yemen, how would you have made that decision differently? Would you have made the same decision? How would you have kind of thought through that calculation, I guess? Well, let me start by saying I have great admiration for President Obama, and I think his uh, achievement on the Iran deal uh, was one of his uh, most significant achievements uh, in foreign policy, and it's just a tragedy to see what uh, President Trump is doing to undermine it. And you're right that many of the in officials in the Obama administration regret what's happened in Yemen. They didn't anticipate that the war would be as brutal <clears throat> or as catastrophic in consequences. I would not have made the decision, though, to give the Saudis a pass in Yemen. I think you could have still negotiated the Iran deal. The concern in American foreign policy has been, let's prevent a single country from emerging is too powerful in a region. I mean, this gets back to the Kissinger real politique that you don't want any quote-unquote hegemon emerging, whether it's in Europe or the Middle East. And I think that has been a misguided framework for the Middle East. It led to the uh, Iran-Iraq war initially, where we supported uh, Saddam Hussein because we thought we needed a counterpower to Iran. And that same calculus led to... Uh, the green light to the Saudis. We said, okay, if we're doing this with Iran, we need a check on Iran, and that has to be Saudi Arabia. 
I don't think that that's the correct way of uh, looking at American interests, especially when you have a region that's only 3.5 percent of uh, total GDP and you have the Saudis uh, as exporters in many ways for terrorism. So I would have just continued to try to build a relationship with Iran and not been as paranoid that somehow we needed to build the relationship with the Saudis as a check on Iran. Uh, That seemed to me uh, a fallacy of uh, of thinking. That seems like a kind of thinking that I think exemplifies this, you know, new way of thinking about foreign policy in a progressive way, because that has been the paradigm, right? Either the Obama administration was, you know, more open to Iran, which meant that, you know, a lot of people were really angry, including the Saudis, but also, you know, a lot of the D.C. foreign policy establishment was like, you're selling out the Saudis, you know, how can you do this? They are a close ally. Meanwhile, you go the other direction and everyone is like, oh, you're supporting Saudi and now, you know. And so in general, I think you you would support kind of rethinking some of those traditional additional, not even really alliances, but partnerships in the Middle East and, and and perhaps elsewhere. I would. I would rethink them partly on moral and, and human rights lines. Imagine uh, that. <laughs> uh, and I would also rethink them in terms of entanglement in yeah. the Middle East. I think trying to balance these relationships has led to our getting involved and entangled in ways that haven't been in our interest. And I'm not naive. Look, the Strait of Hormuz is uh, critical for natural gas and oil trade. But the biggest recipients of that natural gas and oil are China, uh, South Korea, and and India. And yet it's sort of uh, fallen on the United States to bear the brunt uh, of uh, costs of of keeping that secure, where China and India have positive relationships with Iran. So we need to look at our strategic interests in that region. China hasn't been at a war since 1979. We've been in 40 conflicts. Uh, America has, as you know, led the world since 1890. That's when we overtook Britain. And I don't think the foreign policy trajectory that we've been on in terms of conflicts in so many parts of the world is going to allow us to continue to lead for the next 100 years. I want America to continue to lead for the next 100 years. The history of the world is uh, when great powers overextend themselves, uh, that usually doesn't end well. You've been very vocal about wanting to stay out of war with Iran. You've, I think, also backed legislation to um, require President Trump or or any president, I would imagine, um, to seek congressional authorization for any strike on Iran, not just for, you know, full war, but kind of pulling it in for any kind of strike. Under this kind of progressive foreign policy vision, you've talked about military restraint, but that's, you know, you've also said that's an isolationism. And it also doesn't seem that it's it's absolute, right, in terms of no military force ever, things like that. So I was wondering, is there a, a case or a situation in which you would see that it would be justified to, you know, launch even a cyber strike or, you know, limited military strike? And I'm not talking, you know, full-blown invading Iran the same way we did with Iraq or Afghanistan, but— You know, for example, I think about uh, the recent attacks you've seen, like missiles being fired toward the U.S. embassy by Iranian-backed militias in Iraq. And so I was wondering, for for example, something like that, if if missiles from an Iranian-backed militia had actually hit a U.S. embassy and killed people, would that be a situation where you think that military response would be appropriate? And how would you kind of go about making that calculation, obviously with your colleagues in Congress? So the amendment that Matt Gates and I uh, have in Congress— would defund any potential offensive war in Iran, but it preserves the president's authority under the War Powers Act up to 60 days to take military action 
uh, in defense of American uh, troops uh, or American treaty allies. So certainly if there was actionable intelligence that our troops were threatened uh, or our treaty allies uh, were threatened, as Saudis aren't a treaty ally, then uh, the president would have the authority to take that action. And I believe it would be clearly justified to prevent our troops from from harm. Probably there would have to be some limited retaliation or a strike uh, if our interests or our troops were hit by the Iranians as well. Uh, but what I would say is, let's first get back into the JCPOA. Let's not label the Iranian government the a, a terrorist organization. Let's engage in thoughtful diplomacy like our allies. Uh, and then we would have far greater credibility uh, to use force if the Iranians uh, were to attack. But I think part of what has led to the escalation is, is misguided foreign policy. But I'm not a pacifist. Obviously, if our troops are hit, if our interests are property or our homeland is hit or something, our base is hit, right. uh, we have to uh, uh, take action. Okay. Thank you for, for laying that out. I think there is uh, sometimes a um, kind of a perception that that a progressive foreign policy kind of vision is pacifist. And I think it's really important to make that distinction, that there are, you know, in your in your thought, in your view, legitimate times, or there could be legitimate times where military force is, is necessary and warranted and justified. A classic uh, case was after uh, the most significant event in my life, which was 9-11. The entire country rallied around President Bush to strike uh, al-Qaeda in Afghanistan. I strongly supported that war initially. I don't think the goal should have been to overthrow the Taliban, but I think we had to take military action against al-Qaeda, uh, and that was completely justified. I think President Obama was completely justified to go after Osama bin Laden. What I'm more concerned about is these endless wars, these wars of regime change, these wars that last years and years and years without any end in sight. Yeah, and on that point, I'm glad you brought up Afghanistan because um, I did want to kind of touch on that just a bit. Um, I'm not going to ask you to solve the war in Afghanistan <laughs> right here. Don't worry. Um, I mean, if you have a solution, please, by all means, let us know. But, um, you know, we recently saw President Trump uh, and his administration's efforts to try to make peace, make a peace deal um, with the Taliban to try to bring an end to at least U.S. involvement in the war, not necessarily an end to the actual Afghan war, but an end to the U.S. involvement, or at least at the level that we've been. Would you, you know, support additional peace talks continuing like this? Or, you know, we've heard some of the Democratic presidential candidates um, most recently in the last debate saying, I think Elizabeth Warren in particular said that she, you know, immediately, deal or no deal, she would be willing to pull U.S. troops um, back from Afghanistan. Is that something that you would also support or, or would you kind of support more of the Trump administration's kind of strategy in terms of leaving some troops there and trying to sue for peace while continuing to, you know, have that leverage? Well, we need to pull our troops out, but it has to be done responsibly. We have to get at least Taliban's commitment that they don't harbor and actively support uh, al-Qaeda or terrorism. At the very least, that has to be a commitment. I know there are a lot of women's groups that have been part of these peace talks, and right. there should be some commitment on basic women's rights. So I believe that we could get that. I believe we could pull our troops out. We can make it very clear to the Taliban that America will come in with overwhelming force if al-Qaeda reemerges. And if we see that there's a threat to, to us, that it would be 
extremely misguided for them to underestimate American resolve uh, and get certain commitments from uh, the Taliban. The problem has been that uh, there's been a failure of uh, statesmanship and diplomacy. I mean, if Richard Holbrook were alive and uh, the president had sent him, I think he would have gotten a peace deal. Uh, the, the I think Bill Perry or George Shultz would have gotten a deal. Uh, the, the thing in foreign policy is it's actually where your team really matters. The president has instincts and judgment that matter, but having competent governance, having capable diplomats uh, makes an extraordinary difference. I'm glad you mentioned the the women's kind of rights issue. I think that's one of the things that struck me in terms of Afghanistan is that, you know, one of our commitments was to maintain the fact that women now have representation, you know, in the Afghan government. And, you know, one of the concerns is that, you know, if the U.S. departs quickly and, you know, things kind of all go to hell, uh, for lack of a better phrase, that that would be a race. But that's also, you know, one of the reasons, I guess, one of the justifications that has kept the U.S. stuck in Afghanistan, too. And we have to look at the facts of the ground. The thousands of women and children are dying. Civilians are dying in Afghanistan, which is also a a major human rights issue. It's not just our troops that are in harm's way. So the question is, how do we make sure that we can get as much commitment from the uh, Taliban to protect women's rights? There was an op-ed in the New York Times uh, with one of the Afghani uh, leaders of, of women's rights uh, and saying that she was actually involved in the peace talks and, and that there was uh, some openness from the Taliban to hear her perspective. So I think we need to push as much as we can for women's rights in the final deal. But we have to recognize that withdrawal ultimately, in my view, will protect more civilian lives and do the best we possibly can to, to have those safeguards. Yeah. And that's, you know, again, this is kind of why I wanted to talk through some of these issues, because, you know, when it gets down to the nitty gritty, these are like the kind of tough decisions that you have to make that don't have, you know, perfect answers and don't necessarily fit perfectly into it, you know, kind of vision. Um, and just last thing I want to talk about China. I know this is something you've spoken a lot about um, in terms of U.S. competition with China, um, you know, U.S. ability to maintain kind of a strategic advantage in terms of technology and innovation. Um, so I guess, you know, if you were called in as, you know, a bipartisan fashion to give your advice to the president on how to conduct China policy. Yeah. What would your top line suggestions be in terms of, you know, I know you also have, have talked about needing to push back on things like technology transfers. You know, this is the kind of thing that, that other people talk about, intellectual property rights, you know, free trade, things like that. How would you go about kind of advising the president to do that? I would say invest in technology research and the industries of the future, artificial intelligence, quantum computing, synthetic biology, clean energy. Uh, let's have a partnership between government, the private sector, and universities to lead uh, so that uh, we lead much like we responded to Sputnik. After Sputnik, our GDP was uh, 3% uh, in federal research dollars. Uh, now it's 0.7%. Double the NSF budget. Double the NIH budget. Invest more in DARPA. Invest more in RPAE. Uh, and have the best and brightest from around the world come to the United States. Say, if you can contribute to the United States science and technology and innovation lead, uh, we want you here. Uh, that's how we uh, became the superpower we are. Uh, and one of the things that we need to talk more about, in my view, is what is our strategy to, to lead the uh, industries of the future? 
So no tariffs then, no, no trade war. I, I would not have broad tariffs. I don't think that that's uh, going to give us a, a lead. I, if there are particular companies that uh, are violating uh, the law, then I would have sanctions on those particular companies. I would be aggressive at the uh, WTO, but I would have confidence in the American people. I would say we can lead in the industries in, of the future, and we can create these industries across America. Uh, and I am confident that our entrepreneurial system, our innovation, our collaboration of government, private sector, and universities uh, is unique in the world and will uh, ultimately uh, prevail over other countries uh, if we have the resolve to do that, like we did uh, when we faced the Soviet challenge. So essentially beating China at its own game rather than direct kind of you know military confrontation or direct kind of economic war. Well, I would say that China is copying in a imperfect way, the American strategy. We're the ones who invented the strategy of technology research, university research, collaboration with government and the private sector. Their problem is it's authoritarian capitalism. So uh, they don't have, in my view, the same uh, flexibility and freedoms. There's a fair amount of corruption. Uh, they don't have the same uh, People wanting to go to China. I mean, if you talk to the president of Stanford, because I represent Silicon Valley, he'll tell you that the leading scientists in China still want to come to the United States. I will get concerned when people in Brazil, India, Mexico, Canada say, you know, where we want to really go to, to, to do our work is China. That's not the case. Even with Donald Trump, people still want to come to the United States. And what we ought to do is double down on that comparative advantage. We're not going to win on scale. We're uh, one-third the size. We're not going to win on data. They've got, they're going to have far more data. We're not going to win on control because there are we have a messy democracy. So what are we going to win on? We're going to win on having extraordinary people from around the world, and we're going to win on inventing the future and leading the future. Well, uh, I think that's a great place to, to end. Congressman, thank you so much. Thank you. Appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you. And that's our show for the week. I want to thank our producer, Bird Pinkerton, who is currently in Australia doing some very cool reporting. And again, I want to let you know that we're doing an audience survey. It's super useful. It takes no more than five minutes. Uh, please help us out and take it at foxmedia.com slash podsurvey. Thanks a lot and have a good week.